0: Uh, man, I'm excited to be with you this morning. I'm excited to open God's Word to continue our Revelation series. So if you've got a Bible or a phone with a Bible or a tablet of some sort and you want to go ahead and get there, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 18. If you're visiting with us, first time here or haven't been here in a while, we're on a, in a sermon series going through the book of Revelation. And so I'll give you some more info on that in just a minute. But go ahead and turn to Revelation 2. Revelation um, 2 want to just let you know about something coming up starting next Sunday Uh, we have a class it's the connect class it's our class for new members I want to let you know about that it's uh, starts next Sunday it's a two-week class so it'll finish the following Sunday Um, it's during the second service this service and uh, what we do is we just take some time uh, our elders lead that class and walk you through a little bit of history of Solid Rock um, what we believe our statement of faith and some of the governing principles of our church to let you know more about us answer questions. Um, as you pray about uh, God's um, leading you in terms of membership, we want you to, to be invited to come to that class. Even if you're not sure yet, just come and learn more about the church. Um, it's a good opportunity to get to learn and we pray that God will give you discernment as you go through. Um just, just want to let you know, a membership at Solid Rock uh, doesn't earn you privileges. It is a way to say, I'm in. and uh, and so People ask all the time, what does it mean to be a member? Um, first of all, I'll just say, as I look at all of our members, we are So honored and excited about the work God is doing in our church, in the lives of our people. And so basically what you're saying is, I want to be a part of that, and I'm in. I'm committed. And so that's what membership is to us. And so we encourage you to come to that class if that's you, uh, even if you're just interested in more information. That's next Sunday. Be sure you sign up today, though, at the Connect Corner so we can be sure and get enough of the uh, the books printed. All right, Revelation. Let's get ready to get started. So... um, so far in the series, we've, we've learned a couple of things. Um, first of all, chapter 1, Jesus uh, introduced himself and begins speaking to the apostle John. And in chapter 1 of Revelation... Uh, He reveals himself in a very unique way to the Apostle John, one who actually knew Jesus in his time here on earth before the cross. And he reveals himself, though, with this rich imagery. Uh, First off, his hair is white like wool or like snow, reflecting both his purity and also his wisdom and stature. So this is not young Jesus as a child or baby Jesus. This is fully mature, full of wisdom, stature Jesus. He's dressed in a priestly robe down to his He has a royal sash around his chest. He has bronze feet, which we'll get into this morning. He has a tongue like a double edged sword, and he has eyes that are like fierce fire. And so, this is new imagery for the Apostle John. He actually sees Jesus and falls at his feet. Jesus stoops down to John and says, John, don't be scared. Don't be scared. It's me. And he calls John to attention to write down the things that he sees, which is the book of Revelation. So then chapter two and three of Revelation is the, are the letters that Jesus writes to the churches, seven churches, and he has John write these down to send to the churches in the area of minor Asia to real churches in real cities at that particular time. We're talking about late first century, so mid-90s A.D. Uh, is when this takes place. And so it's just some background. If you're new to Revelation, there are different interpretive perspectives, so I'll give you just a quick rundown. Um, there's a camp of folks who are more of uh, from, the, from the camp of all this has already taken place, it all took place in John's time, so it's all happened except for the return of Christ, everything's done, we're just waiting on the return, and so that's a past tense view of the book of Revelation, there's a group who see it, future tense, all of it is talking about the future, and none of it has started yet, and we're waiting on it to start unfolding, uh, there are those who are historists or who see it as, especially with the churches, representing different periods of time, and we're somewhere in the middle. And then there are those who are on the, the side of symbolism who would say it's all symbolic. Don't try to make too much out of it in terms of real people, real times, real events. It's all symbolizing human history, and so, so don't try to equate it to actual human events. Those are the, the big perspectives on the book of Revelation. How that relates to today is this. We're looking at a letter that Jesus tells John to write down for him to the church of Thyatira. And so the three different ways to look at this, either what Jesus had him write down was specific only to those believers at that time in that church, in that city, or what Jesus had John write down for that church was symbolic of a period in church history, which we would equate to the medieval period, and we'll talk about that maybe a little bit in a few minutes, or what... Jesus is speaking to John as simply symbolic for all churches of all time and not to be considered necessarily for a specific people and place. Now, those are the three big perspectives on where we're at in Revelation. We've learned a lot so far. We've already gone through three churches, and what we're learning is that regardless of what perspective you come from when you approach the book of Revelation, he is writing with vivid detail about what is happening in real time on the ground at that particular time and place in these churches In these cities. And with each of the churches, Jesus reveals himself with a specific characteristic that seems to bear significant relevance into the struggle of the believers that that are in these churches, in these cities, in the first century. At the same time, we're finding a lot of relevance for us today here at Solid Rock. That even in 2015, what Jesus is speaking to the churches in Ephesus and, and Smyrna and Thyatira, um, we'll see today, is incredibly relevant to the struggles that we're facing as a church and what we are to be as his followers. And so, um, regardless of what camp you come from, um, there's a lot to learn about what Jesus wants for us here today. So we're going to get started in verse 18 in just a second. A couple things about Thyatira. Probably never heard of it. Probably kind of one of those names that you may be hearing for the first time. It was... It was really an insignificant city in this particular day and time. Of all the cities mentioned, it's the least significant in terms of population, commerce, um, imperial representation, just just a little small port city um, that was known for really two things. One, it was known for its guilds. And so guilds were these little, um, probably equivalent to or similar to um, a a modern day um, work cooperation or... Um, if you uh, belong to a union, something like that, um, they were orga- organized by trade. So if you were a shoemaker, which shoemakers were well known in Thyatira, then you belong to the Shoemaker Guild if you wanted your shoes to get sold. Matter of fact, the shoemakers in Thyatira were one of the primary shoemakers for the army. And they made the, all the, uh, the gear and the armor for the, the uh, Roman soldiers. Uh, they were also known for their fine linen and their dyed Fine linen. If you are familiar with Acts 16, the Apostle Paul leads a lady to Christ named Lydia, and uh, Lydia was from Thyatira, and she was a maker of fine purple linen, uh, and they were also known for their metal smiths, their bronze smiths. But it wasn't enough just to be good at your trade. If you wanted to be involved in selling and making money, you had to be a part of the guilds. Well, the guilds weren't just based on commerce; they were also rooted in pagan worship which meant that at their guild meetings, they didn't just talk about the latest techniques for making shoes. They spent time worshiping uh, false idols, um, offering food to false idols, and we'll see today even beyond that in their pagan worship. So quite the challenge. There was no uh, really known imperial worship in this particular city. Like last week in Pergamon, we saw that they were steeped in imperial worship. Caesar was a big deal, not so much here. The God that these folks were most uh, inclined to worship was actually Apollo, the son of Zeus. And that's the God that they were known for. They didn't have any outrageous temples and, and temples to multiple pagan gods. If they had a significant God, the primary God was Apollo, the son of Zeus. Let's get started in Revelation 2 verse 18 to hear what Jesus has to say to this church. Verse 18 says, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Verse 19 I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your later or latter works exceed the first. So so far, this letter is starting off in similar pattern to the other letters. Jesus first addresses the angel of the church of that city, identifies himself with some type of characteristic trait that will bear weight and relevance into the struggles of that city. And so here's what Jesus says. He says he introduces himself as the son of God, and then he refers back to that vivid description from chapter 1, whose eyes, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, this title, Son of God, is not a new title for Jesus. The New Testament calls him that in a lot of different places. Uh, We see him as the Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But in the book of Revelation, this is the only place that that title appears. Interesting. Especially when we we think about what we know about the, the, the pagan worship struggles of this particular people. As they went to their guild meetings, if they were a good, faithful meeting of the guild, they had to offer sacrifices and worship to who? To Apollo Who was Apollo? In the pagan worship world, he was the son of Zeus. And so we see Jesus identifying himself to to his followers, to his church there in this city, reminding them of what? That he is the true son of God. As he begins to speak into their struggle to call them out of their compromise, he reminds them of what's at stake here. You're gonna compromise, you're gonna worship the son of Zeus, or You're going to follow faithfully and hold on to the one true Son of God. And so Jesus identifies himself as a Son of God. Now that's that's how Jesus works in our lives too. Identifying himself, revealing himself specific into our struggles. In the midst of brokenness, he's a healer. In the midst of... Loneliness, he's a companion, right? In the midst of maybe no strong leadership in your life, he's a, a loving father. In the midst of despair and darkness and hopelessness, he brings what? Hope. And so whatever struggle is, is true in your life right now, many, many of you are going through real struggles right now, Jesus wants you to see him as intimately involved in your struggle. He is what you need right now. And so as he's addressing this church and the very real struggle that they face, he reminds them what? I'm I'm actually the son of God. I am the one true son of God. And then he refers back to his imagery of fierce eyes of fire, and feet of burnished bronze. And we looked at this a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 1. This idea of having eyes like a flame of fire is, is reflecting his ability to see below the surface, to see what's really going on, right? More than just discerning from the outside, Jesus can actually see what's going on. Now, think about how incredibly uncomfortable Um, that might make these people feel the first time they're hearing this. Because what's going to happen in this letter is Jesus is going to distinctly draw out two groups of people, those who have compromised and those who have not. But on the outside, they looked a lot like this. They all looked like faithful followers of Jesus. They were showing up for church one day. They realized, oh, wow, John just sent us this letter, and Jesus has written us a specific letter. Let's be seated. Let's hear it. And the first thing that he says to them is, Don't forget, I have eyes like fire. Meaning what? I can see what's going on. I see past the religious facade. Right? I see more than what you're doing on Sunday morning. I saw what you were doing on Saturday night. I saw you at your guild meeting last Wednesday. I saw you in your moments of compromise. And uh, We we looked at this a few weeks ago in chapter 1 where God says, To the prophet Samuel in uh, 1 Samuel 16, he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's that moment in in Genesis 3 after the fall, Adam and Eve are hiding, and God comes walking in the garden, and he calls them out. And he sees what's really going on in the situation. That That moment, right, where... Um, we have a uh, we have two boys and one of them um, he he finds it very entertaining to be deceitful Um, and uh, and it's that moment when you're busted right and 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 he's so hard-headed even when he's busted he doesn't want to give in he still wants to hold on to well maybe his story was true but it's that moment of oh crud I've been found out and that's what his eyes reflect he is a god who sees what's really going on you can't fool him You can't put on the religious facade and show up for church on Sunday right? and and fool him. You can fool everybody else, but you can't fool Jesus. He has fierce eyes of fire that see below the surface. Uh, He has has feet that are like burnished bronze. Some good, rich soldier imagery here. We've talked about that before. But even beyond just looking like he's equipped for battle as a soldier with bronze feet... Um, When you look at the Bible as a whole, God has, from the beginning, from Genesis 3, uh, he has proclaimed that his enemies would be made a footstool. Very common language throughout the Bible. Even in Genesis 3, in the garden, God's speaking to Adam and to Eve and describing what the fall is going to be like, what life is going to be like now. He speaks to Satan, the serpent. In Genesis 3, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Meaning the offspring of Eve will bruise the head of the serpent and you shall bruise his heel. There will be this constant struggle until God ends it. There will be this constant struggle between Satan and the children of Adam and Eve back and forth and back and forth. And Satan will continually be nipping at the heels of God's people. Yet there will be a day when what? When finally one will come, a descendant of Adam and Eve who will trample the head of the serpent and God says it this way in Hebrews speaking of his enemies he says but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins talking about the cross he then sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet And we get to Revelation 14, there's going to be this imagery of a harvest of grapes, possibly reflecting all the false religions in the world. And guess what happens to grapes when they're harvested? They're brought to the wine press. And you know how they pressed wine? With their feet. They would trample them and press them and trample them. And so that's the imagery of what happens to God's enemies. And so as he begins to, to talk to the people here in Thyatira, he lets them know, I see what's going on in your heart, and I come as one who will place my enemies underneath my feet, and I will trample them. Verse 19, I know your works. And this is very familiar to where he starts with the churches. He talks about something going well within their church. So he says, I know your works. And then he lists out four works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Now, these are identity markers when Jesus says this. These are the things that you're known for, not just from people on the outside looking in, but when Jesus, who looks to the heart and sees not as man sees, he says, these are the things I see in you. I see your works. Here are the things that you're really good at. What are they? Love, faith, service, and patient endurance. These are identity markers of this church. So we don't, have to, we don't have to look very hard to realize that these are identity markers that Jesus is calling us to as a church. If these were things he's looking at saying, good job right here, these are things that we as a church should be thinking about and pursuing as well. That these might be our identity markers in our culture, in our context here on the west side of Fort Worth. And so, let's talk through these. The first one was what? Love. They were known for their love. Now, before we, you know, before we go much further, love, defined biblically, um, does not mean embracing the character of culture, right? So we live in a culture that say it would be unloving if you don't embrace what's going on in mainstream pop culture. It's unloving or it's intolerant is the word, but what's implied is you're, you can't be loving and, and, and stand against what's happening in mainstream pop culture, what's happening in the world around you. So when the Bible defines love, defines love this way. Love is rooted in truth. Love is, 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 is revealed in sacrifice, but love does play out in gentleness and compassion and brokenness. So all those things need to be present if it's truly love. John says to his disciples in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. It's a command from Jesus. Just as I loved you, you are to love one another. So if we ever wonder about what what is my love supposed to look like towards you and your love towards me, Jesus said it should look like like the way I loved you, right? Rooted in sacrifice, rooted in truth, encapsulated in gentleness and compassion, right? And grace and, and mercy, but it should look the same. And then he goes on to say, by this, this is verse 35 of John 13, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? love for one another. So even before the church launched, Jesus has got his disciples there and he's speaking to them, teaching them about what their identity markers would be. And the first and foremost is what? Love. People will know that you're mine, not by the clothes you wear, or even what, you know, whether or not you have faithful attendance in church. First and foremost, they'll know that you're mine by the way you love. If you know me and you know my love, you'll love the way I love. The next thing that he mentions is faith. I know your works, your love, and your faith. Now, for one of the struggles for the first century Christians, primarily those coming from a Jewish background, was making the transition between Israel being God's people in the Old Testament and then God making a way through Israel to call the nations to himself. Even though before the nation of Israel is even founded, in Genesis 12, when God speaks to Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, he says to Abraham, what? Your descendants, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all nations. So even before Israel was formed, right, in their DNA was this idea that God wanted to bless all ethnicities, all colors of skin, all languages, all nations through the people of Israel. So when we look at the chosen people of Israel, it's not that they were... Always going to be God's favorites, but that for a period of time, God would work through them to reach the nations. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. He is the descendant that God was promising. And so at the cross, Jesus dies for the sins of Israel. Yes, the sins of Israel alone. No, he died for the sins of all nations. He resurrects and tells his disciples what? Go launch my church and make disciples of all, what is is it? Nations. All ethnos ethnicities and so but there was a struggle to make that transition in the early church between especially for the faithful jews right from we're god's chosen people to oh wait a second we're just among god's chosen people and so one of the things that the apostle paul works diligently on when he's writing his letters to the churches is helping them to realize that the people of god are no longer distinguished by their ethnicity their family background their family tree He goes on to say even socioeconomically, like those are not the things that distinguish you as God's children. In Galatians chapter three, the apostle Paul writes, verse seven, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. They were having this amazing struggle in this church and the Jews were playing favorites among the Jews and the Gentiles were allowed to call themselves Christians, but they were kind of like second rate Christians, right? Because they weren't, from Israel, the people of God. And Paul says, What are you talking about? The children of Abraham are those who are marked by their faith, not by the color of their skin or who their dad was. Why? Because the gospel has come for all nations. We're going to see later on in Revelation the gathering of the nations, the tribes, the tongues of the world, and realize that Israel is just one among those nations. Now, think about it, though. Their understanding of faith was this. It was such that every Christian in this church who's receiving this letter was fully expecting it to cost them their life. Now, it's still pretty rare, right? But even this last week with the shootings in in Oregon, what we understand so far is that people were being identified, the victims were being identified by their faith in Jesus as Christians. All the details aren't, aren't out yet, but even going back to Columbine, we know, right, that even here in North America, in the United States, there is a reality that it could potentially cost you your life to be a Christian. And, and many of us, when we hear those stories, what do, what do we think to ourselves? I wonder what I would do. I wonder if there's an, you know, an active shooter, God forbid, who asks, if you're a Christian, stand up. I wonder if in that moment I truly would stand up. What are you asking yourself? I wonder if I truly do believe. Would I stand up? Or would I shrink back in fear, making a deal with God? I'll repent of this later, and I'll just pretend, right, that I'm not, a, like I'm not a Christian. So we hear about those stories, and we ask ourselves, for these folks, I mean, they were expecting that to happen on a daily basis. Faith was a seed planted in the heart of man and woman that produced fruit, right, cause them to action, cause them to stand in the midst of even potential execution to say, I will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe. And so Jesus is commending them for their faith. Now, we've got, you know, if I look back over the history of Solid Rock, I can see some monumental moments where we've acted as a people of faith, as a church in particular situations of struggle or whatever was going on, and, uh, and, and, you know, so I can see those identity markers here. But I just wonder if when the people on the outside come visit or, or look in, would they say that about us? Is that one of the identity markers they would say about us as a church? Man, those people love well, and they are a people who, who live out what they say they believe. Is there a connection between their actions and what they proclaim to be true? The church in Thyatira, Jesus says, I, I see your works, your love, and I see your faith. The next thing that he um, p- calls out is their service. Now, this isn't just like going out on the church lawn and picking up trash kind of service. This is serving unto another. Okay, it's active care for another individual, more like being a servant to. Okay, that's the idea here behind uh, their service. And so it forces me to think about um, throughout the New Testament the one another's of scripture. As you read through your New Testament, if you just go through and mark the one another's, you're going to see this beautiful map or description of who the people of God are to be towards one another. Let me read a few of the, uh, the one another's to you. Love one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Wash one another's feet. Rebuke one another. Accept and greet one another one another, instruct one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, encourage one another, live in harmony with one another, submit to one another, honor and show devotion to one another, sing to one another. Did you know that we were commanded to sing to one another? Sing to one another and share fellowship with one another. So what Jesus is saying is you're really good at the one another's of scripture. It's an identity marker of your church. When I see you with eyes like fierce fire and I look below the surface, I see people who love well, people who have faith, and people who serve well. Let me just read a couple of verses from the New Testament. Galatians 5.13, Paul talks about our freedom in Christ. He says in verse 13 of Galatians 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, meaning serving yourself, but through love serve one another. So of all the the, the great benefits we have from being in Christ, one of the benefits is that we've been set free now to serve one another. Now think about that. What does that mean? It means before Christ, who did I serve? Me. And I I I was enslaved to serving me. I was. Life didn't have purpose before Christ, and so I had to figure out how to make purpose for myself. Right? I didn't feel completely loved and accepted by anybody, so what? I had to earned that from people, and I I put on a show, and I sought the applause of men, and ultimately, who was I serving? Me. What what Paul is saying is what? You've been set free from all that. Like, your identity has been established. You've been completely loved, and you've been set free now to do what? To love one another well. You used to have an excuse before you didn't know Jesus. You have no excuse now. This idea of serving is is reflective of this, this amazing grace that every person in Christ has tasted Peter says this um, in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Does that sound haphazard to you or convenient to you? Earnestly kind of turns up the heat a little bit, doesn't it? I'm supposed to be intentional in loving you, not waiting for you to come to me and say, hey, can you help me with this? I'm supposed to be seeking opportunities to love you earnestly, sincerely, intentionally so he says above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins show hospitality to one another without grumbling ouch without grumbling as each has received a gift now i want you to hear this as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of god's varied grace Let me unpack that for us today. What he's referring to here is the spiritual gifting that you have in Christ, the Holy Spirit has gifted you. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, here's the thing. If you're in Christ, you have a gift, and you've been given that gift to serve and edify the church. And so what Peter is reminding us of here is this, that those gifts, those spiritual gifts, are actually an extension of God's grace. So... When I engage in using my spiritual gift that God's given me to bless you, when I engage in that, I'm actually stewarding God's grace really well, which means what? The opposite is true. When I'm disengaged in serving, when I'm negligent of the gifting that God has given me, I'm not only selling you short, but what? I'm not stewarding God's grace very well, right? I'm treating God's grace with contempt and and, and, and a sense of entitlement when God has given me and you and Christ's gifts to serve one another with. As, as we do that, we're stewarding God's grace well. You've been given God's grace not just for you. You've been given God's grace to share with others. And this church was doing a really good job at serving one another in this way. In tune with their spiritual giftings, knowing that their spiritual giftings weren't for them but for somebody else, and they were serving one another like crazy and Jesus says, man, good job, believers in Thyatira. The last thing he mentions is this, patient endurance. Now, the key word is which one? Patient endurance. Patient endurance. What does that mean? It means enduring without grumbling and enduring in faith, ultimately. You see, like many of us even here today are in situations right now that you're enduring And if you could get out of it at any given moment, you gladly would. For these believers, they were facing and enduring some really hard things. And I would be willing to believe that they spent a lot of sleepless nights praying, God, please bring this to an end soon. Lord Jesus, come soon. Bring this persecution to an end. Fix all this. But as they got off of their knees and engaged in daily living, they did so patiently without grumbling. What were they doing? They were saying, ultimately, Lord Jesus, here's my struggle, my hardship, my suffering. Whatever it is, I trust it in your hands. I trust your timing, and I trust the way you want this to unfold. So it wasn't just that they were enduring. They were patiently, in faith, enduring their hardships. That really challenges me. I may challenge you to think about maybe your own situation and the fact that you're enduring right now. But are you patiently enduring? And why does it have to be patient? Because patience says something about our heart attitude, doesn't it? It says what? Ultimately, I trust you for the timing, God. And Jesus says to this church, you guys are good at this. You love well. You love so well that the people outside the church know you for your love. Your faith is so strong and rooted in truth that the people on the outside of the church, they can say a lot of bad things about you, but they can't say that you don't believe what you say you believe. You guys are so good at serving one another that your identity in that city amidst all the persecution is what? That you serve one another really well. And not only that, you're enduring, but you're enduring patiently the hardships and the struggles that you're facing on a daily basis. And these are the things you're doing well. As his church, then, As his church, Jesus is calling us to be people who are identified by our love, our faith, our service, and our patient endurance. For whatever else we're known for in this community, right? Jesus doesn't say he really gives a rip about being known for our style of worship, our style of preaching, our clothing, how much money we give, right? Those don't seem to be like a big deal to Jesus. He's saying, here's what I want you to be known about in the west side of Fort Worth church. Your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. As his church, Jesus is calling us to be people who are identified by these things. Then he wraps up this statement with this phrase, your latter works exceed the first, which is a fancy way of saying, here's the deal. You're not only good at these things, you're growing. When you started, you were good at at love, faith, service, and and patient endurance. But here lately, you're growing in these things. Your latter works exceed even where you started. And he's describing their growth. I think think this can be challenging for us sometimes as Christians um, to to understand that as we grow individually, pursuing the Lord, growing in knowledge and maturity and growing in his character, something else is happening. Our church is growing in a maturity. I think we tend to look at churches as more of like static organizations when that's not how the Bible describes us. The Bible says that as we grow, especially in our serving of one another, Ephesians 4, the church grows. Well, if that's true, I'd say Solid Rock is a pretty young church. When we look at who we are as a whole, right? As a church body. Not saying that the demographics are young, I'm just saying we haven't been around that long. And so, with being young comes what? Making mistakes, right? Sometimes getting it wrong, immaturity, those sort of things, right? But here's the point that Jesus is making with this church. You didn't stay where you first were. You're growing. As his church, Jesus is calling us to grow and mature in our identity. We can't rest in how good we were last year at these things, right? We can't rest in how good we're doing today, Jesus says, I'm calling you what? Into maturity in these things. That your love would grow. Your faith would grow. Your serving one another would grow. Your patient endurance would grow. You would actually get better and better and better at these things. By the way, if you are looking in your sermon notes and you're taking notes, you notice this week we've got a lot of um, subtext in there for you. For you to go back and study addresses of different verses, I encourage you, go read Ephesians 4 and see this amazing link between your gifts and what God is doing in our church. Starting in verse 11, he says, Jesus, this is Ephesians 4, he says, Jesus gives these roles to the church, apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, shepherds, and here's the reason, to equip the saints, to serve. And when that happens, here's what happens, as a church, we grow and mature so what's happening in your life individually bears weight on what we, our life as a church together. You can't, you can't pull the two apart, right? Now, I don't think we always think about church that way. But this is how Jesus sees the church of Thyatira, and he's saying, here's where you've done well, but not only that, you guys are growing. You're maturing. You're making mistakes. You're repenting of those mistakes. You're getting it right. Verse 20, though, the the corner turns. And Jesus is going to call out some really significant struggles going on in their community. Now, different from the other churches that Jesus is writing, what's happening in terms of struggle seems to be happening just with one specific group, not the whole church. And so he's going to describe two different groups here of people within the church, those who are struggling versus those who are not. Let's read verse 20. But I have this against you. Here's where you need to pay attention. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Let's let's unpack this together. So there are two different perspectives here. Either Jezebel was an actual lady potentially a member of the church who is leading some astray, or symbolically she represents a, a teaching or a heresy within the church leading people astray. We're going to look at both of those uh, here together and look at what's more probable considering the wording. So the name Jezebel to begin with, uh, most commentaries would say that's probably symbolic, referring back to Jezebel from the Old Testament. Jezebel was uh, the Phoenician wife of Ahab, uh, and, and so what what happened through Ahab and Jezebel is that the northern king of Israel was led uh, completely into idolatry in the worship of Baal. And so that name was a significant name of seduction away from God towards false, the worship of false gods in the Old Testament. So whether that was actually her name or not, um, we, we probably need to make a strong connection with Jezebel from the Old Testament because the same thing is happening here in this church. God's people are being seduced away, seduced into compromise with things going on in that culture. And so just just thinking about what's worded here, that she calls herself a prophetess and is teaching, so probably teaching in the church, saying what? I have a word from God. And so she's spreading this false teaching even within the church. And not only that, she's seducing the servants of Jesus into practicing sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So because it's, because it's described that way, that they're actually practice, practicing this, similar to 1 Corinthians 5, what we understand is this was probably actually going on in their church. While this idea of being seduced into sexual immorality and, and food offered to false idols symbolically reflected their rebellion, it was probably literally going on. And this wasn't, this wasn't new to the first century church. They were immersed in a pagan world that oftentimes the temples were were filled with prostitutes. And so sexual immorality was was a significant part of of pagan worship. And so the idea they were actually practicing this within the church is not too far-fetched. We talked last week, Nick was preaching, talking about food offered to false idols, and he reminded us what? That food in itself is an inanimate object. The New Testament teaches us that, right? Right? Chicken's chicken. Mac and cheese is mac and cheese. Slab of bacon's a slab of bacon. But when it's offered in sacrifice to a false idol, then it's consumed believing that that's somehow going to bless your business or give you power or touch your life in an intangible way. Now, you're engaging in worship by eating the mac and cheese, right? You see the connection? So it's not about what you're eating. It's about what your heart is doing while you're eating. And so What we know is true of this particular city is that uh, the guilds that operated uh, with all the, the areas of commerce also engaged in pagan worship. At their guild meetings, they weren't just administrative meetings looking at new areas of trade. They actually engaged in pagan worship. So if you were a Christian and you were a member of the guild, you had two options. One, you play along believing, or two, you played along just to play along. Either way, there was compromise. And so these These Christians were struggling. How do I sell my shoes? Right? My dad taught me how to work with bronze, and 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 I'm really good at what I do, but I can't get into the guild unless I worship the pagan gods, and I I worship Apollo, and, and that's compromise. So we know also that this idea of sexual immorality was a significant symbol of rebellion of God's people in the Old Testament. Over 70 times in the Old Testament, God's people are compared to a prostitute engaged in whoredom, in your Bible, to describe how rebellious their hearts were against God. Over 16 times in the book of Hosea alone, God's people are described this way. That their unfaithfulness to God wasn't just some... Mediocre sense of wondering or straying away from God, but that God saw it as the rebellion that a husband would feel when his wife up and leaves him to go be a prostitute. That's how God describes the pain and the angst that he feels when his people leave him and betray him for another God. And so this potentially was literally going on, but we definitely know that symbolically, right, we can see a connection here being expressed for what God was feeling, what Jesus is seeing when he looks into the heart of his potential. Followers, those who are genuinely following him, versus those who have compromised and sold out. And as he looks into the depths of who they are, and he sees the compromise and the sellout. What he's seeing are what he's seeing is an unfaithful wife who's given herself to lovers. So mixing up with the guilds wasn't just light rebellion. Jesus sees it as all-out rebellion. Remember how he introduced himself: the Son of God. You're either gonna serve, serve the son of God and believe in me and trust me and what I can provide for you and your family or you're gonna sell out and go worship the son of Zeus. Compromise. As a church, Jesus is warning us too. Jesus is warning us not to be seduced by the character of our culture. They could have made tons of excuses, right? Right? But wait a second, we can't sell our stuff, we can't make a living, we can't, I mean, surely, like, don't you understand what's at stake here? In the same way, don't we compromise in our current culture as well? Aren't we seduced to give in to what's happening in mainstream pop culture and what is acceptable? Each person here is being seduced on a daily basis, whether you acknowledge it or not. You are. You're being seduced in your workplace. You're being seduced in politics. Oh, he went there. Yeah. I'm not promoting a party. I'm just stating the facts. You're being seduced by media. Not just the news outlets. You're being seduced by what comes across the screen. What do we mean by seduced? There's an agenda driving these things. There always has been, there always will be. There was an agenda being driven in Thyatira. And the Christians were compromising and selling out to participate in what culture was doing. As his church, Jesus wants us to not be seduced by the character of our culture. And it's happening to you and I on a daily basis to compromise So now he goes on in verse 21. What we're going to see is the fierce judgment of Jesus combined with his rich mercy and grace. Verse 21, speaking of Jezebel, whether it was a literal person or just symbolic of the heresy that was taking place. Verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Even in his fierce judgment, there's grace. Jesus is saying what? I gave her time to repent. I'm not a uh, one-time-you-mess-up-and-you're-out kind of, kind of God. I gave her time to repent. I think we struggle sometimes to see that, that Jesus can, can represent both grace and justice. And we think it's got to be one or the other. But even in this particular situation with Jezebel leading this false teaching and this rebellion against God, Jesus is saying, here's the thing, I didn't give up with her, give up on her at the very beginning. I, I actually gave her the opportunity to what? To repent, to turn and come back to me. But she did what? She refused. Now look at what he issues next. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless what? Unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. On one hand, that's incredibly harsh judgment. On one hand, Jesus is saying, I've had enough of this seduction. I've had enough. It's not just about Jezebel anymore. My people are being led astray. I've had enough. I gave her the chance to repent, I drew the line with her. Now, church, I'm giving you the opportunity to repent. Fierce judgment, tempered with grace, love, mercy, and kindness. And Jesus is saying that to us today. Without me even knowing what your potential area of compromise is, he's saying to you, first of all, I want you to know I see it. You might have everybody else in the room fooled, but you haven't fooled me. I see where you're tempted to compromise right now, and I'm extending to you grace by calling you to come back to me. After that, he says in verse 23, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. How will they know that? He's speaking into the details of their scenario and situation, calling people by name. They're gonna know it. Oh my gosh, Jesus knows what's going on in our lives. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Look at this, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, see two different groups of people who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burdens. Keep doing what you're doing. Two groups of people, those who are compromising, selling out to the character of the culture around them, and those who are holding firm. And to those of you who are holding firm, Jesus says what? Keep doing what you're doing. i got no other burden to put on you. You've got enough burden as it is. And so as his church... Even here at Solid Rock, Jesus warns us. Warning is an act of grace. Right, parents? Warning is an extension of, I could issue this punishment right now for your actions, but as a loving parent, I'm warning you. I'm letting you know. If you continue, if you do it again, there will be a punishment coming. So even warning, right, is an expression of grace, especially with a God who's justified to to bring it to an end the first time we mess up. But is that the way God deals with you and me? Not at all. He warns us. Sometimes again and again, He warns and beckons and warns. As His church, Jesus warns us and extends grace to us that we may repent of the areas where we have compromised. That's good news. That means your mistakes from yesterday don't determine who you will be tomorrow. Whatever sins have happened in your life and your past that you've engaged in, they will not and they do not determine who you are in Christ. They have no authority over you. Verse 25. So instead of holding fast to the teachings of Jezebel, verse 25, those who are being faithful only hold fast to what you have until I come. What do they have? They have his promise, right? The promise of the gospel. He's saying don't let go of that. You hold to that. We saw this in Hebrews. We see it all throughout the New Testament. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast the gospel. So he tells them, I'm not going to throw any more burden on you. Just keep doing what you're doing. Hold fast to what you have until I come. And then he mentions the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. Let's unpack that. So who is the one who conquers? The one who keeps whose works? his works. Now, we just took a strange turn right there. I don't know if you noticed it or not. Where did he start out? He praised them for their works, right? And then where he started? Here's where you're doing well. Good job in the way you love. Your faith is growing. It's strong. Your service towards one another is growing and maturing. Your, in, your endurance, you're becoming more and more patient. That's what you're doing well. Keep doing what you're doing. But then he shifts here Right As he begins to look forward, he tells them to to rely and rest on what? His works. It's a subtle shift, but here's what he's saying. Don't rest in what you can accomplish. Don't trust in your works. Don't find your identity in what you're good at at any given moment. Rest in my works. What does he mean by that? I think he's speaking of everything from birth to resurrection. If you're aware of this or not, but Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. Perfectly righteous. And the Bible says that by faith, when we trust Him, we not only get forgiveness of sins, but God gives us His righteousness. He's not just pulling righteousness out of thin air, He's taking the righteousness of Christ and He's dressing you in it. The righteousness of Christ is yours by faith. His works. When he goes to the cross and dies, it's not because he deserved to die. That's him, what? Working on our behalf. Saying, what? I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. And he takes our sin to the grave, and three days later, he resurrects. Now, let's let's be honest. He didn't look like much of a conqueror on the cross, did he? He looked pretty defeated. Crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't sound like the chant of a conqueror. He looks like one who was defeated. But he takes our sin to the grave, and three days later, he rises again. He conquers, doesn't he? And he's not just conquering the Roman army. He's conquering death itself. And so he says, to the one who conquers, keep my works. Trust in what I've done for you. You're doing well right now. You may mess up tomorrow, but if you mess up tomorrow, that doesn't change your identity. Because your eternity is not based on what you can do, your eternity is based on what I have done for you. My works on your behalf. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And then an allusion to Psalm 2:9. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as myself have received authority from my father. This is a beautiful invitation for Jesus to say this I'm not just inviting you into my own family, I'm inviting you to be a conqueror with me. All throughout the Old Testament, speaking of the Messiah, he would not only come as a reigning Messiah over the nations, that his people would join him in conquering. When we get to the end of Revelation, we're going to see him conquering the nations we see him conquering Satan. We're going to see him conquering once and for all, finally, death itself. And so Jesus is saying, here's the thing. You trust in my works, you'll be conquering with me. You are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Verse 28 and 29. And I will give him, the one who conquers, the morning star... I'm um, not fully sure on the symbolism here, but Old Testament numbers describe the coming Messiah that way. This is Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. But I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This idea that the coming Messiah would come like a bright and morning star. And then you get to Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things These things for the churches. I am the root of the descendants of David, the bright and morning star. So, not fully sure what he means, but I know this. We get him. Wherever he's at, we're at. The bright and morning star isn't something we're hoping to come or far off anymore, right? Like he said in the Old Testament. It is, I see him, but not now. Like, that'll one day be diminished, and we'll see him, and it'll be now. At the moment that you and I are with the bright and morning star eternally. And he says to death, you're done now. When he says to Satan, you're done now. When he says to hardship and suffering and persecution, struggle, infirmities, terminal illnesses, evil activity here on earth. When he says, you're done. Your chapter's done. You don't get to even argue about it. You're done. He will conquer. And he says, those who have trusted in my works will conquer with me. He who has a hear, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He ends every letter with that, right? Why? Because the invitation is still on the table. Anytime you read that phrase, what Jesus is saying is here's the thing there's still time to turn. There wasn't for Jezebel anymore, but there is for us. And so Jesus is saying that to you today, to me today. If he who has a hear, has an ear, let him what? Hear. The gospel invitation is on the table. Jesus has lived a perfect life. He's died on the cross for your sins and resurrected from the the grave as a conqueror. And he's saying, it's all yours. Eternity with me is all yours if you will what? Believe. That's it, just believe. Believe the way they believe, believe. Faith that gives way to action. Faith that says, I'll stake my life on it, faith. And yes, that is the invitation on the table. He who has an ear, let him hear. You almost feel some angst in that, don't you? Please, listen. you saw what happened with Jezebel, please listen and come back to me. As his church, Jesus calls us to be conquerors with him by standing on his words and relying on his works, if you're taking notes. Standing on his words and relying on his words works. May we never be a church that relies on what we can do for Him. May we never be a church that's solely identified by how awesome we are at serving Him. May the people who walk in the doors of this church know that we have one boast, and that is Jesus. Without Him, we're nothing. Might as well just be a guild, right? Might as well just be the Rotary Club. Without Christ, we are nothing. I'm going to invite Jason Lewis to come back up and We're going to go ahead and take communion together as a church. And I want to encourage you. um, First of all, if you've never taken communion, you don't know what that is. It's a symbolic expression of worship for Christians. Jesus asked us to do this. First of all, to remind one another of the gospel, this beautiful sacrifice on our behalf, but also to celebrate what we have in Christ. And I think it's important for us as Christians to always take a moment that we not walk flippantly into communion. To think about our important relationships, to look for maybe hidden sin in our lives, and to take some time to get our hearts right with God before we take communion. So we're going to do that now. I'm going to ask Jason Lewis to lead us in singing a little bit of Sweetly Broken as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the sweetly broken body of Jesus on our behalf. So let's pray together and we'll sing. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for your ultimate sacrifice on our behalf that through conquering death, you've extended conquering to us. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate what you've done for us in taking communion, would you bring to mind right now any areas of unconfessed sin in our hearts? Would you bring to our mind right now broken relationships or places where we've been negligent of serving or loving one another? God, could we bring that to you this morning in repentance before we take communion. We pray all this in Jesus' name.